I think the first question I had for you this afternoon is, is, is do you think that there are enough targets uh, in Germany today? Uh, uh, does the government need to do more in that regard? Uh, or if not, what other actions um, are needed? And um, well, Hans, perhaps I can invite you to kick off. <laughs> yeah, yes. So I think if there's anything the German uh, energy transition has more than enough of, uh, it's probably targets. Uh, because, uh, I mean, we, we've, got, we've got the 2045 uh, net zero target for the entire economy. We've got something implied by kind of mid-2030s, the power sector fully decarbonized. We've got 80% renewables by, uh, by 2030 and, and plenty of other targets in, in, in other sectors. Where we're, where we're lacking, in my view, is uh, 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 well, uh, with implementation and actually the, the doing rather than the, the aiming. And uh, over the past years and decades, whenever we missed a short-term target, we got more ambitious long-term targets. And this has really gotten to a point where we can't have any more ambitious long-term targets without looking ridiculous. So what does, what does the government uh, need to do it? It needs to, it needs to move towards implementation. But the one thing, and the government can frankly do very little about that in the near term, but what it can do something about is uh, when it comes to permitting and, um, um, and uh, legal challenges to projects, to, 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 to grid lines and so forth. And uh, to end that on a slightly more positive note, uh, the government is doing something um, about this and I'm seeing quite a lot of movement in that area. Uh, Marcel, I mean, you're, you're investing, your organization is in investing into uh, green energy, green power production here in Germany, also to the grids. So you're making investment decisions, but how are you deciding where to allocate capital in, in this context? Honestly, the energy transition is unfortunately a terribly complex project. Now you could call it a multi-generational project, probably one of the, the most ambitious ones that we, that we pursued in Germany for a long time. And, you know, it requires a lot of angles to come together. And, you know, we, we tend to call that the triangle of the energy transition. And now as ENBW, the, the ambition that we have is to say, look, we want to make the energy transition work in all three of these angles of the triangle. So we do have our own power generation that's meant to be greened. And, you know, we moved away from nuclear. We used to be the German utility that was most reliant on nuclear 10 years ago. We obviously aren't anymore. We still have certain exposure to coal-fired power generation. So the, the challenge that we do face, so you put your finger right into the, the, the critical point, is how do we allocate the capital that we have in order to make progress in all of these fields at the same time? I mean, you, as we think again about this question um, about setting targets or implementation, you know, you're looking to develop projects that will essentially bring green energy you know, into Europe. And do, do you feel that, that the German market today has the right um, targets and creates the opportunities for you to bring green energy here? The targets are clearly there and they're very, very ambitious. I mean, uh, somebody at Bloomberg uh, had uh, probably nothing better to do than calculate uh, what it takes uh, to do 250 gigawatt uh, of uh, solar by 2030 here. And it's 43 football fields per day between now and 2030. You know? I mean, I don't even know where you can put this in Germany, if you can do it. No? So um, we do believe that probably 70% of the electricity you need uh, to meet this target needs to be imported to, to Germany. And in addition to electricity, you may also need uh, uh, green molecules. No? So uh, having the benefit to be in a startup and being quite agnostic in this respect, we are looking at both uh, directions. 
uh, I cannot agree more uh, with the, what the CEO of Gita was saying. No? You know, if you believe uh, that this is going to happen, uh, it will happen. For sure, uh, we uh, believe that, you know, for sure if you do a 30 mega project, it's great. But if you want to move the needle, you need to do gigascale projects. Uh, clearly challenging. I think the risk is not much uh, the, the lack of capital when you do the project. The risk is mostly in having development capital at risk because the mortality is going to be huge there. And uh, so when you have the offtake, when you have uh, all these things and uh, the project is becoming financiable, then you will find the capital. I mean, Marcel, as you think, does, does this question also tend to, back to allocation of capital, does, does it, do the regulators effectively drive your capital you know, towards one part of your business away from another? Absolutely. And, and again, you know, I mean, the two of us, we have to say that returns aren't high enough. I mean, that's that's clear. And you you, you may argue that, you know, we're going to give you that that answer irrespective of whether the equity return is 5%, 8 or 10%. But, you know, if you just take a step back, I think the, the thing that's important for, you know, the, the people taking the decisions and, and setting the target returns, particularly for the regulated side of, of the business, um, what they ought to do is, you know, just look beyond Germany. I know we're here to talk about Germany today, but, you know, fortunately or unfortunately enough, capital is somewhat mobile, right? So mm. it doesn't have to be invested in this country. Um, I guess there's a lot of capital that would love to be invested here. And, you know, I think for, for a very long time, we heard that story that people would love to invest in German infrastructure, but didn't find the opportunities to do so. Now, the good message is, there will be opportunities and there will be tremendous amounts of opportunities to put hundreds and hundreds of billions of euro to work in this country during the next 10 to 15 years. But the thing is, and, and that's what, you know, what I'd love for, for regulators and, and again, the decision makers to take into account a bit more, that, that needs to be compensated you know, on a risk return adjusted basis in a competitive way internationally. So the reference point is not whether gas grids or H2 grids going forward are going to be compensated slightly higher than the electricity transmission grid here in Germany. The question is, you know, what, what are the, the, the competing regulatory systems that capital could go into? And that we heard that just in that, in that earlier panel. You know, if you look at the US, for example, that's pretty tempting right now. So it's not something for us as a company to do, but just overall, an, an important perspective to take into account. And I think that is, you know, not fully embedded into that discussion uh, discussion as of today. And that probably explains why we, we have the return levels that we currently see. And, you know, the system is just not made for an interest rate development that we saw during the last 18 to 24 months. You know, that was probably never foreseen. It still happened. We all know that. Um, so something needs to be done. And, you know, that process is hopefully, I'd say, our perspective, not finished yet. Mm -hmm. and, and, and Marco, I mean, you, you, you're looking to produce green energy in, in different parts of the world. Um, when you think about, you know, Germany and but also other places you might send that energy, where in your mind are the most attractive places that you could send your energy? Would that also be the United States or, or how do you think about destination? United States for sure with the IRA uh, may be a huge market also for domestic production. The question there I think is whether you can uh, use the incentive there also for, for export somewhere else. Uh, assuming that's the case, uh, clearly, you know, needs to be uh, convenient compared to, 
to local uses there. So CFD is clearly one instrument that would play a role. And uh, when uh, no, you talk to off-takers uh, here in Germany, they are the first one asking for asking for this instrument. And if you want, you know, not our project of ours, but there are uh, similar projects in the UK that are very much reliant uh, on this very scheme. And uh, clearly it's uh, one that uh, could really help uh, things accelerate uh, meaningfully. Mm. I think in general, Germany is still seen as an as an attractive market also comparatively um, I mean I'm, I'm more on the unregulated side rather than on the uh, on the on the regulated side doing market modeling um, uh, and I think um, uh, I think that was eroded a little bit um, over the past year by these uh, by these whole discussions or not just discussions but actual uh, um, exposed uh, revenue caps and um, um, and 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 so forth being uh, being applied, which was uh, something that I think at least I pre-energy crisis would not have thought is possible in Germany, and then um, ended up um, ended up being done. But I would say generally, there's uh, it's it's still a comparatively high trust uh, country. On the regulated side, I think uh, I think something definitely needs to happen, and I think there. Um, the mindset among uh, many of the decision makers is simply that uh, still the pre-interest uh, rate mindset um, of, oh, these guys are making a lot of money. Um, and uh, if we're being completely honest to ourselves and are looking at the multiples at which regulated businesses were sold four or five years ago, um, perhaps they didn't go quite far, far down enough. I think the other thing I would want from regulators uh, beyond um, this um, kind of just higher... Uh, regulated returns is is more openness towards new technologies, um, and I think that's something um, uh, the Bundesnetzagentur here in Germany has uh, traditionally not been very good at. Uh, just to give uh, one example, batteries um, uh, um, are booming right now in Germany. We're at 1.3 gigawatts um, of installed capacity, with several more gigawatts in the pipeline over the next couple of years, um, and um, uh, that is despite and not due to the Bundesnetzagentur's actions. And there's more than one way in which it is being impeded um, by regulatory decisions there. So um, I, I, would, I would hope for more openness towards uh, new technologies that can make um, an, a contribution to the energy transition. I mean, Marcel, your, your, your company is already a leading electricity producer. You referred to the history as well, but also the way forward and clearly doing a lot across wind in particular um, and offshore wind. I mean, how do you see the picture for uh, for the development of power in Germany? And, and do you see that there will be a, a role for green hydrogen in the foreseeable future? Well, I, I think there's definitely a role for it. But, you know, coming back to that question you raised slightly earlier, you know, will that hydrogen come or will it be produced locally or regionally here in and around Germany? That I would question as of today. I'm, I'm not saying that I have the crystal ball, but... I think the challenge is sizable enough to, to decarbonize electricity generation um, for us to, to actually complete within the next, call it 10 years, plus or minus. 
Um, and we will most likely not be able to build out even more capacity in terms of renewables to generate the green hydrogen that we then will use to either use it in industrial applications or you know, use it in our you know, CCGTs that we build right now um, that will eventually run on hydrogen. So th there is a need for it. There is a role for it. I, I don't disagree with you that you know, the, the format could still be decided and it doesn't have to be green hydrogen for each and every application. Um, but I'm also fairly convinced that it will, you know, predominantly have to be imported somehow. Um, I also think that from a cost-benefit perspective, that's just way more economical to, to do it. Mm. Um, and I think that we're, we're going to see a significant amount of developments. But all of that, um, again, unfortunately, has to happen really quickly. And, you know, just to give you one example, I mean, we are... Um, we heard a bit earlier about, you know, this somewhere between 20 to 40 gigawatts of, of new-built gas-fired power plants that we need in Germany that will eventually run on hydrogen in order to be fully decarbonized. Um, at ENBW, we took an investment decision to build three of them. So they're actually being built as we speak. It's at least one and a half of these 20 to 40 gigawatts. So there's still more to come. Um, so they are being constructed. They will become operational by 2026. They will run on natural gas for the first couple of years, up until the point in time when we will have hydrogen available in sufficient quantities and, and at economic prices to actually make that switch. So they will be fully H2 ready from the get-go and will most likely make that switch somewhere in the early 30s. But obviously we don't know when exactly, um, but you know that's what we are working towards. Um, but we will definitely have a situation where, you know, fast forwarding 10 to 15 years, a very large chunk of the overall energy consumption that we have in Germany will actually be produced or procured from from elsewhere. Mm. Hans, would you share that perspective in terms of the outlook for hydrogen versus electrons in the economy? Broadly, yes, I would say. Uh, I mean, ultimately, it's a question of uh, economics and potentials, right? Um, so Germany is an okay place to renew to produce renewable electricity there's there's certainly better ones um, in the uh, in the world i mean looking at some of the uh, pl uh, places where where zero is is active and if i'm a renewable developer here in here in germany and i have a project um, i'm going to sell it to uh, the electricity to the highest bidder um, and that can be uh, an industrial offtaker uh, that can be an electrolyzer that can be a utility and whoever's going to be, pay me most is going to get it. So the uh, so the electrolyzers will be competing with all other sectors and they will then have to decide, um, um, is that going to give me a, a hydrogen price with it, with which I'm competitive in the market um, or, um, uh, or will, um, will imports win the game? Um, because making it in Norway, uh, North Africa, wherever is going to be uh, is going to be cheaper. Um, where exactly um, this plays out, uh, we will have to see. I mean, we've obviously done modeling on this and have views, uh, and, and that's uh, that uh, broadly half of um, Germany's long-term uh, hydrogen uh, consumption will be made locally and um, and can be made competitively there as well because it's relatively expensive to transport hydrogen on uh, over long distances. But uh, but not all of it. So there will be um, a large markets for um, uh, for imports as well, and that's just hydrogen. Um, uh, and if we're then talking about ammonia, for instance, which will be one of the main vectors uh, for transporting hydrogen, um, and there it will be 
extremely challenging to maintain um, a local production of ammonia uh, in, in Germany when we're importing hydrogen in the form of ammonia at the same time and then cracking that up again into hydrogen, right? I mean, that's basically, um, that's basically destroying energy uh, um, just, in, just in that cycle. Okay, well, that's very interesting. So I, uh, I, one takeaway I'm taking from that clear, very clearly is that half of Germany's hydrogen production, you think, will be produced locally in the long term. Frank, if I can maybe just, you know, uh, thinking about, you know, open grid and the role you're playing in, in developing, um, you know, hydrogen grids, um, you know, interesting to hear as Marcel's talking about, he's already building H2 ready uh, CCGTs uh, here in Germany. Um, you know, as you think about, you know, planning and actually building the grid to deliver hydrogen, do you need to have the sources of demand and the sources of supply already in place before you'll commit to build the grid? Or do we need to have the grid come first so that others will commit to deliver the green energy? Yeah, I think for quite a long time, we had this typical hen and egg problem, huh? so that the grid was not there, then nobody wanted really to produce hydrogen because there's no infrastructure. And we said, yeah, we first need long-term contracts with off-takers, and then we build the grid. And then, yeah, that was also not possible. Um, because yeah, the industry just said, if I don't have a guarantee that I have a constant baseload flow of hydrogen, then I will not uh, change my assets and so on and so on. So, and I think there we made really a big uh, step forward now together with the government that we are in, in, a, in a procedure to agree on a so-called core grid in Germany, the famous Kern nets. Grid. Um, and there indeed we, we took care that um, the, we have the flexibility to import hydrogen. So the grid, if it will be realized, is connected to Norway, Netherlands, Belgium, France, then also Austria, Czech Republic to take care of Italy, potentially also from North Africa, and then also the Baltic Sea. Um, and of course, we also took care together with the other TSOs that we then also check where our the main areas of industry which will consume hydrogen in the future. So there were also some CHP targets given from the government. So all these kind of information were used and then the experts modeled this core grid, which is um, around uh, yeah, 10,000 kilometers. So it's quite significant. And um, yeah, then we would yeah, uh, solve this hen and egg or chicken and egg uh, problem. Um, where we are still in discussion is about the economics. Yeah? The, the big issue is, of course, yeah, the first customer who will be connected to the grid doesn't want to pay the full cost, which is logical. And um, so we, we have to charge a tariff, which is then much lower and not um, doesn't cover our cost. So there is a, is a gap at the beginning. <laughs> and there yeah, we came with the government to a kind of a solution, how that can be financed in the meantime. And I can say on headline agreements was also in the Handelsblatt stated some days ago, we, we are in line. However, now we have to further detail the, the, the legal stuff and so on. And, you know, there can still be some surprises. So hopefully, I think we are on a good path that uh, we create then a grid at the end by 2032, which creates this flexibility. That's great to hear that progress. Yeah. Maybe thinking a bit about you know the the green power production and um, you know where you choose to build uh, wind power and solar power in in Germany. Clearly, the sea is in the north, but um, I guess you're still making 
locational decisions about where to build in some cases. Do you think the right framework exists in Germany, Marcel, for making those type of decisions? Or do you think that, you know, a more zonal based approach to pricing would be helpful? Look, I mean, when, you, when you're trying to, you know, get to that question, whether we would fancy a zone split, uh, you have different price zones really in Germany for, you know, wholesale market prices, you know, our response and statement would be a clear no, because we think it would just be terribly inefficient compared to the situation we currently have. You know, if you just simply speaking, if you cut the market in half, you know, you have markets that are less liquid and less liquidity in the market is, is usually not a good thing. Um, I don't want to remind all of us of what we saw happening in wholesale market prices, you know, during the last two years. <clears throat> Even if that doesn't come back, having less liquidity is bad. Uh, plus the fact, you know, where would you actually take that cut, right? Because, you know, you would have to separate markets somehow artificially. And, you know, that border needs to cross the country somewhere. And, you know, I, I think it's, it's just terribly difficult to actually find that right location. Yeah, quote unquote, uh, to do plus, you know, essentially the, the, the tricky bit that we have is, yeah, renewables build out, that's one thing, but transportation of electricity. So these large, you know, electricity motorways, as they, as, as they are called, you know, some of these lines we actually build together with, with partners as well, um, given we have one of the TSOs, electricity TSOs in our portfolio as well. Um, these things are just terribly complicated to build. We, we, or you, you mentioned the fact that given yesterday night's decisions, it's probably easier to now connect onshore wind farms to, to the grid because you can you know, basically cross parcels of land. If I just take one of these transmission grid lines called Zutlink that we built together with Tenet. Um, that's a line that's about 700 kilometers long. We have to cross 20,000 pieces of land. So we have to talk to 20,000 landowners and basically get their approval and, you know, have that registered in the Grundbuch and whatnot. So that's just one aspect. I'm not talking about the 106 species of animals that we have to take care of during the, um, during the building process and, and etc. So that's the, the tricky part in addition to building out renewables. And what I would, you know, ask the government not to do is try to steer, you know, in a, in a micromanagement way where which type of renewables actually gets built out. Mm. And I think developers are, are smart enough to find, you know, solutions to that. Um, we actually saw significant developments, you know, in terms of solar PV in the last couple of years. Um, but we need more of everything. Um, in order to achieve the goals that that and the targets, coming back mm -hmm. to the first question that were that were said, um, what we do need is again significantly accelerated approval times. Um, you know, it, it can't be that it takes seven years from the start of development to actually COD of an onshore wind farm. I mean, that's you know, it's it's technically speaking not rocket science. Um, but that's unfortunately the situation we have right now. We're quite positive about the developments we saw recently. And, you know, let's see what that, that package that was agreed last night was going to bring. Um, but that's the focus or that's where the focus should be from, from my perspective. Hans, as, as you look at different markets, have you seen examples of sort of locational based pricing models where there have been maybe some advantages to the system? Um, so it's, there are a few uh, places in Europe that have it, of course, Italy, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, um, uh, 
most US markets are even more local and have uh, have nodal pricing. Uh, there's a very strong discussion in, in the GB market um, underway to introduce um, either zonal or uh, nodal pricing. So this definitely isn't something that's only being discussed uh, in in Germany. Um, and um, I agree with you that actually on the on the on the generation side, it would probably introduce more problems than it solves, um, especially for wind, because I mean solar the generation pattern is pretty similar across the country. It's being built in the north, it's being built in the south, so not a big difference. Um, the wind is in the north, mostly, um, and um, the, the, the wind economics is being threatened by a potential um, price zone split. And that's something that would have to be resolved if, um, if the price zone were to be split. Um, there's a reason, however, why I still think it's worth at least thinking about it, um, and that is the sheer imbalance we're going to get in our electricity system over the next 10, 15 years. So just to give you a few numbers, um, the government is planning to build 160 gigawatt of onshore wind by 2040, 45, 2040, I don't remember, uh, 70 gigawatts of offshore wind. Um, so when it's getting windy, you'll be having 200 um, gigawatts plus generation um, of, of wind, most of which is going to come from, come from the north. And uh, Suitlink, the project you mentioned, that has a capacity of four gigawatts. So we'll be needing 30, 40 gigawatts, uh, 30, 40 Suitlinks, I'm sorry, to get most of the electricity from the north to the south if all the, if all the electric vehicle drivers in the, in the south decide uh, to charge their electric vehicles when power prices are low because it's windy. And then we're going to have Tenet or some of the other transmission system operators going to have to intervene and redispatch every single one of those e electric vehicles um, out of the consumption mix again. But if, I, if I may just just add to that, because while while I don't necessarily disagree, I think the the thing that a price zone split would try to address is you know a temporary phenomenon of not having the transportation capacity that you that you need, because essentially you know we're going to see all these renewables assets being built and unfortunately that capacity has to be built somewhere somewhere and you know offshore wind we know where we can build that we can't build it in the south of the country unfortunately we'd love to um, so you know i think we we will definitely and you said well 30 to 40 suit links probably not that many but you know we'll definitely see more of these large capacity transmission lines plus the converter stations etc um, in order to to balance the system out going forward mm -hmm. Um, and I'm not saying it's not complicated, definitely not. Um, but I, I don't think that it, you know that the price zone split as such, you know, would not actually solve that equation mm. or, or solve the problem. Um, we still have the fact that generation is is located in other places than where we have the hubs of consumption. So that needs to be addressed somehow. And I, I don't think it's only going to be price signals. 